Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today we have an interview with our friend of the show. I think it's third time guest, Jim Gillies, and we talk about international petroleum. Uh, he gives sort of a high level view of the oil markets in general. This was really kind of a veggies session. We get, we got to learn a lot about the entire industry since we're kind of naive to it. Yes. If you don't know much about energy, if you don't know much about oil, this will be a great overview of what inputs and outputs go into it. Jim himself said that, hey, do not he almost said, do not listen to me here. He's not, he's no expert on the subject. He said, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, he says he's not an expert, but he sounded like he sounded, he knew a lot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I learned a lot from this episode yeah. about the industry. I still feel like I'm in over my head, but maybe we inch a little bit long, uh, uh further along and making some progress here. Definitely. Now, before we get to the interview, we've got a word from our sponsor quarter, uh, so they gave us some new talking points. There's uh, an update coming out. It's really interesting. There's a new segment that I kind of like. First of all, they used to have companies from 12 markets. It's gone to 15 markets now. Plus, they're going to add more over time. They it, It's totally free. And I guess for anyone that doesn't know, I'm using Quarter. It's earnings season. You have to. Uh, it's an investor relations app. It's basically friction-free. You can listen to conference calls, look at investor presentations, uh, transcripts. And the longer the quarter's out there, the better it gets because it gets all the more conference calls. You can listen to it on a drive. I'm more of a walk and listen kind of guy, but you know everyone's got their own preference. Um, oh, new update. Users can now leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. I, I haven't gotten the update yet, so I don't know what exactly that entails. But, but it sounds good. Sounds cool. Yeah. Sounds so fun. I'm going to go ahead and check that out once I get the chance. So just go ahead. You can download it. It's quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E at the end. You can also follow them on Twitter. I think it's quarter underscore app. So go ahead, check that out. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Today, we are welcomed by Jim Gillies, and we're talking international petroleum. We just had basically an hour catch-up session, catch session, so I'm not going to start in with an intro. Why don't we just get right to international petroleum? Do you want to describe what it is? Sure. Hey, guys. Um, international, I'm gonna, can I, uh, I'm going to preface this by, I'm going to set expectations low. And then hopefully I don't underperform, but I'll set expectations low. Um, the the number of times that value investors have had, and I count myself in their ranks, uh, the number of times that value investors have had their faces ripped off by uh, calling the end of the present oil um, oil and gas and commodity cycle, which has stretched on for a while in the doldrums, um, is not zero. And uh, it has felt a little bit like waiting for Godot. If you enjoy your your playwrights, I will say Godot never comes. Spoiler. Uh, so, um, with that caveat out of the gate, international petroleum is oddly enough an uh, uh, international oil and gas play uh, headquartered in Sweden slash Canada, traded in Stockholm 
and on the Toronto Stock Exchange for your listeners uh, or viewers. I don't know if you're recording video. God, I hope not. Audio um, only. Don't worry. <laughs> perfect. I have a face made for radio. Um, the, the ticker symbol on the Toronto Stock Exchange is IPCO, IPCO. And it's, yeah, it's, it's the very aptly, very Swedishly named International Petroleum because they do oil and they're international. Um, so they, they, are, they are an E&P company, exploration and production. I generally loathe E&P companies. So naturally, I'm going to talk about one here. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want me to say why I loathe E&P companies, but... Um, uh, Can you give the, like... Can you give a little ba- bit of background about what ENP the, the ENP players actually do, like how their operations work? Sure. I mean, they 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 supposedly explore for and produce recover hydrocarbons uh, for energy purposes. So your your oil and gas play. Um, they uh, uh, the my basic mental model on this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to keep. Well, we're not recording anyway, so the fact that I'm reading off my notes and the other screen doesn't matter. Um, in good times, the mental model that I have for these companies traditionally, and it's done what it's served me well, is in times when times are good, when oil prices are high, when gas prices are high. Uh, these companies, of course, are you know massive revenue, uh, and these these guys are basically looking to acquire more assets, so explore exploration, and they might buy from other companies. Um, and that's not free, but they're they're in accumulation mode during good times, and. Uh, the problem that historically a lot of these companies do, like I could give you a long list of Canadian uh, mid-range E&P companies where the spending on such things tends to be about a buck 20, buck 25 for every dollar in cash flow they produce. And you could probably see the problem with that. <laughs> Right. right. Um, so, you know, in, when times are good, EMP companies tend to run cash flow negative. But because times are good, a lot of these companies also pay out dividends, maybe rising dividends. So they're already burning more than they're bringing in. And then they want to share the largesse with their shareholders. So they pay out a dividend. So that, that's a further drain in cash. But don't worry. The investment banks are always going to be there to help you raise equity, help you raise debt, right? You can always raise more capital. Um, and, and so that, you know, it's assumed that high commodity prices will be there forever. It's assumed that financial markets uh, generosity will be there in perpetuity. Uh, and then someone like me comes along and says, um, this is upside down. This isn't good. Uh, you know, I'm invariably told uh, they can run like this because of the value of their reserves. They can, you know, they got the reserves in the ground. Um, and that's great. That's great and all. And uh, the problem is you, your value of your company. And again, this is just my mental model for EMP. So this is not what we're not specifically to, uh, to international petroleum here. But, uh, you know, uh, historically, this has certainly in the, uh, uh, the mid and small, even the large players in Canada, this has been kind of what's happened. Uh, these things hemorrhage money by the time you account for all of the sources and uses here. Uh, and then oil prices turn down, gas prices turn down because we have no, the single, the single biggest uh, determinant of firm value is the commodity prices, which are, of course, inherently unknowable and beyond your ability if you're an executive of the company it's beyond your ability to, to really control right like 
if if Russia and Saudi Arabia decide to jack production by 30%, guess what? You have no control. Oil prices are going down. Your stock's going to get hurt. Um, so this is kind of a crummy place to be, frankly. Um, and so when when it, when the cycle rolls over and oil prices go down, um, you know, you're you start bleeding more cash. What ends up generally happening is the companies they try to stanch the bleeding for a while. They even continue to take on debt, maybe sell some equity at a much lower price. Ultimately, they probably have to kill the dividend, which if your shareholder base is been a bunch of people who have invested for the dividend, they tend to sell you without warning or sell you without regard. They're reasonably ticked off. And, uh, you know, so you wake up, say, in 2020, um, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, the last time that oil touched $100 a barrel was uh, uh, was 2014. The most E&Ps are down 80 plus percent. Dividends have been slashed uh, 75% plus in some cases to hundred and the entire industry is in ruins and no one wants to talk about investing in oil and gas. So sound like a fun place to go. Yeah. yeah the, uh, I think <laughs> hitting down more on international petroleum. Um, yep. can you explain what countries it actually operates in and what types of resources sure. it is producing? So basically, in, uh, in the lion's share is in Canada, a country, the country of my domicile, my birth, uh, hopefully not for a while, my death, um, is about 83% in Canada. Uh, it's basically oil and gas, you know, uh, 17%. I, I think I'm going to get the number roughly wrong. I think it's about eight or nine percent, or sorry, nine or ten percent comes out of Malaysia. And eight or nine percent comes out of France, but the you know, the over like seven eighths of the production is coming out of Canada. Uh, so, f- funny thing about Canada: very stable markets, very stable operations, uh, adjacent to some other country. You know, right beside us, you guys seem to like to buy energy from uh, from unstable environments. We do sometimes wonder why you don't buy more from us, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it's it is you know it, it, light light and heavier uh, various grades of petroleum uh, gas is a byproduct. I think it's about forty eight percent Canadian oil, uh, about thirty five percent Canadian gas, and then like I said, the rest of it's just oil and gas out of uh, out of Malaysia and France of all places. Okay, this might be demonstrating my naivete for the whole oil industry, but do they basically just go around? search for land and then stick a straw in the earth and see what's coming out? Or is it like, <laughs> well, there's, more tech. there's more tech or do they, there's a little more tech than that. Uh, a way of you, knowing what's basically. Well, now you're getting into another favorite company of mine. Uh, you can use seismic data to, uh, to look at the subsurface. This is not what we're going to talk about, but you know, I'll give you a freebie. Um, uh, use a lot of seismic data to look at uh, subsurface wise. So you don't have to just randomly stick straws or, Right. you know, monitoring and extraction wells and whatever in places. Um, use seismic data and the, the number one player in Canada in seismic data is a company called Pulse Seismic, PSD on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Tiny little company. I think it's sub 100 million. Uh, trading at about nine times last quarter's cash flow. Not last year's, last quarter's. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, and, Paul, and by the way, during during the seven-year downturn in the Canadian oil and gas, well, the worldwide oil and gas market, but, you know, hit Canada. Uh they, Pulse Seismic used to be the second largest player in the space. 
Um, uh, two years ago, they became the largest player in the space when they bought the previous largest player in the space because it was an offshoot of Cytel US. It was called Cytel Canada. Cytel had some debt coming due. And so they basically sold for a song to Pulse. They Pulse did it all debt finance, no equity. So shareholders haven't lost anything. And now it's a large. So if you want to, if you want seismic data in Canada, your choice is to go go shoot it yourself, which can be expensive and problematic. Or if if Pulse has got uh, coverage in that area, you can go license it from Pulse. Uh, but that's a plug. That's a you know, uh, you know that's that's an interesting one. Um, Pulse has been another waiting for Godot stock, but if 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 I can go to my macro thesis, which is that I think this, and again, a lot of people have been laid waste by this, right? This time is different. I mean, you should, you know, to your listeners, they should probably run screaming the second I say this time might be different. If this time is different, there's a lot of companies in this space that, uh, even though a lot of them are doubled this year. Um, including Paul, uh, including uh, international petroleum. Um, they're just getting started. If this, if this, if this is after seven years of what I'm going to call nuclear winter for the Canadian oil patch, um, if this really is the end, and I think there's reason to suggest it might be, then there is some opportunity in these spaces. And I think international petroleum is a pretty good horse to be riding. I think Pulse Seismic, it's a provider of services to the industry. It's a pretty good horse to be riding. But yeah, they, they, they go out, they acquire land, they acquire land interests. Uh, you know, whether they're just sticking the straw in or whether they have reasons to um, understand what might be more. Uh, in a lot of cases, they're buying proven areas as well. Like they've already been proved where, you know, oh, there's oil and gas in this area. Uh, I, I think it was called Granite. Uh, was the company that uh, International Petroleum bought a couple of years ago. I might be fading on my me memory here, but like uh, that was a proven company or a proven area. Um, you know, like we know oil and gas roughly where it is in the Western Canadian oil patch, like in this space. Like it, it's it's fairly well known uh, geological area or or you know. If you sink a straw in my backyard, you're not going to find anything. But you go out to my friend's place and, you know, outside, outside just outside of Calgary, you're probably in a reasonable, reasonable place to have a hit. So, but it, it, there's, I, you know, I, again, beware people saying this time is different. This time might be different. Okay. So what, what, oh, go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to say, what are some of the factors uh, driving that belief for you? Like, basically, what is your thesis behind uh uh, sustainable it, it rising is, price is, oil. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, at least it, look, oil will rise and then eventually it'll peak and then it'll roll over again. Okay. Like, like the, I'm not, I'm not calling for an era of uh, perennially high commodity prices. Um, but I'm just going to do a real quick stalling tactic while I pull up. Uh, yeah. So oil as we speak is, is now over $80 a barrel and has been sitting there for the last few days, weeks, or whatever, um, there is a tremendous, tremendous amount of operating leverage in these spaces. Okay. Like, uh, you know, and you can look at, you know, like, uh, I mean, different places, you have know, different costs of production. Um, you know, the, the cost of, the cost to produce a barrel of oil from of sweet Saudi crude is slightly less than it is to produce a barrel of bitumen out of the Canadian oil sands. Right. So, 
you know, uh, the Saudis will make money at $35 a barrel oil and the Canadian producers will starve. Okay. Just because the cost to extract that barrel is different. Um, but the, these companies you can kind of plot on an, on an operating leverage and okay, like, and, I, and I, I'm trying to keep this very simple and high level because this, this thesis is simple and high level. And I don't feel the need to, uh, to make it any more complicated unnecessarily than I have to, because I like simple. Um, but the, for starters, we are coming out of the pandemic. There's greater energy demand. And if I can, I'm going to back up a little bit here, like, and I don't know if you guys know my background. Uh, I actually am an environmental engineer. I was a professional engineer for 10 years before walking away. Um, I have uh, a reasonable history of uh, environmentally themed projects, whatever. I am a fairly green kind of guy myself, at least I fashion myself. So um, drive an electric car, have electric, I have solar panels on my roof, like yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm trying to, you know, deflect some of the ire of the uh, the ESG crowd when I say, um, do you guys have any idea how, uh, uh, it might be quiz time here. Uh, do you have any idea how much energy use the world uses? What the world's energy use is? In like a terawatts or something? In like a terawatt? Well, let's, let's, go, let's go with terawatt hours, sure. I, oh my I God. I, no I'm going to throw, it's going to be a number between, oh gosh, I have no idea. I'm going to say 80. Uh, the world energy demand is about 170,000 terawatt hours right. annually. Okay. <laughs> way off. Um, yeah. You like your tip, your typical American or Canadian home typically uses about 10 to 11,000 kilowatt hours and a terawatt is a billion kilowatt. So basically worldwide energy use is about 16 and a half billion average North American homes if that kind of can puts it in a little context. We, we, we have a small addiction to the stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if, if I'm doing quiz time with Jim here, I, I suppose I'll make it even worse. You guys, you're closer to school than I am. You're like, Oh God, like, you know, I've done our time in school, man, go away. Um, do you guys have any idea what percentage? And by the way, uh, worldwide energy use is rising at about one not one point nine percent annually for the past three decades. So part of my thesis is that's probably going to continue, right? Where energy use is rising at two percent annualized for the past three decades, that's probably going to keep going at about two percent a year for the next few decades. Okay, so the big three fossil fuels: coal, gas, oil. What percentage of global energy demand is currently being filled by those the three big the the, the three big bads when it comes to climate change and greenhouse gases and whatever Co combined or separate combined combined all right this one's a little I think we can be a little easier here I'm gonna say seventy percent I was gonna say seventy percent okay you, you're you're underestimating it's actually closer to eighty it's in wow. in twenty in twenty nineteen wow. it was seventy eight point nine percent okay. That's the most recent year I have, 2019. 2009, what was it? Uh, I'm going to say like really close, like 82, 83, 85. It was also, it was also just shy of 80%. Oh, geez. Now, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. In, in 1999, what was it? I'm going to say 80%. <laughs> You're learning. Uh, yeah, it's about 77.1%, so slightly lower. 
1989, so 30 years ago, what was it? I'm going to go, I'm going to say nuclear was higher. So maybe like 74, 73. It was just shy of 80%, 78.6%. My guessing has been bad. (laughs) Well, but my point is, okay, you know, try having a point, Jim. It'll make it so much more interesting for the listener. The point is, even with the rise of renewables, okay, with hydropower and solar and, and, and wind and all this stuff, even with the rise of renewables over the past three decades, even with nuclear, the percentage provided by the big three fossil fuels is largely unchanged, okay? And by the way, we are not going to be switching to a 100% renewable economy tomorrow. We can't. And so you've got, and all of this data, by the way, can comes from a, you can go to check it out yourself, uh, folks. It's, uh, it's called ourworldanddata.org. Uh, but, you know, the, so basically you've got, you know, energy use running, you know, gro- growing annually at, you know, 1.9, almost 2% over the past 30 years. And the fossil fuels maintaining basically their market share, air quotes, uh, coal is actually down. So oil and gas have gained share within the big three fossil fuels. But they they have retained a remarkably static market share during the last three decades. Okay, so what does that mean now? Well, the thesis on this stock is you wouldn't know that if you read the newspaper or read the the, the headlines in on your favorite uh, investing site or you look at the tweets. It's all you have is you know ESG ESG. Uh, you've got ESG funds and pressures don't own, don't own these companies, don't own these dirty companies. Okay. And again, I, I am down. If you want to eliminate greenhouse gases from your life as much as possible, I am down with that. I have, I, I like to hope I have led as well by example, or at least lived up to that myself. Again, electric car, you know, paid to put solar on the house. But I'm just dealing here. I like to say you have to separate your personal ethics brain from your investing brain. And the investing brain says we're probably going to still be using these things for a while. And yet now you've got a bunch of social pressure saying do not own these things, not dissimilar to the social pressure from the 80s and 90s on the tobacco companies. Mm. Don't own these things. And, you know, if you go back and look at Philip Morris, which of course is now Altria and spun off Philip Morris International and had a bunch of other spinoffs along the way. And uh, I think it's what, I mean, I, I think it's north of, I think it's almost a 20% annualized return going back 50 plus years, right? Something uh, like that, total return at least, yeah, for sure. Yeah, total return, yeah. Um, yeah, assuming reinvestment of dividends and whatever. Um, and so I look at these things, okay, so now energy use, is probably going to continue going up. Energy use is probably going to continue to be funded by fossil fuels and increasingly by the cleaner gas versus coal and oil stays where it stays. Um, renewables still love to see them, want to see more of them. Renewables remain a rounding error because, you know, just because I'm about, about 80%, um, you know, again, nuclear is in there. Okay, and we're not building a lot of new nuke plants either, which even though they're, they're they're greenhouse gas free. And yes, I know there's waste from those things, but you know, if climate change is the bigger issue, then we should be, you know, getting rid of coal plants and putting in nukes. But that's another hobby horse. That's another hill to die on. I'm not going to do it right now. Um, 
So what do you do to meet global energy use increase, especially in a world where ESG pressure says don't own these things? Well, I say you own these things because they are going to in the the other interesting thing that's that's kind of developed so in the last seven six seven years since the last time oil was reliably over a hundred dollars a barrel um which was 2014. um what has happened is capex in this space has been dramatically underinvested in Boy, I hate that I'm doing all this in macro. I'm sorry, but uh, so you, there hasn't been a lot of investment in the space. There hasn't been. Um, there's no excitement for the space, and yet a lot of these companies have kind of quietly got their house in order. Now, whether they'll keep their house in order if oil and gas do rise back up and you get oil at $150 a barrel for a year or two or whatever. Um, because that sort of seems like how we're going right now with the, you know, we're at 80 bucks at the start of the year, people, you know, kind of scoffed at people who said oil is going to hit 70 this year. Well, now we're kind of reliably over 80. And, you know, the other thing is too, is that uh, when the last oil bust happened, uh, Bethany McLean, who is the author or co-author of a book that you guys and I were talking about beforehand uh, called Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about uh, about the fall of Enron. Uh, she's written a number of other books or even mini books. And one of the books she wrote was called Saudi America. And that is about the, the U.S. shale space and uh, the rise of U.S. shale. And, um, you know, if you've spent any time looking at Chesapeake Energy or the former, in every sense of the word, CEO of Chesapeake Energy, Aubrey McClendon, um, that, you know, kind of from our perspective out here now versus when they were in it in the go-go periods of time as they were building out shale, um, the U.S. shale industry was net cash consumptive. It burned, I believe, I'm going to misquote the number, but I believe uh, from that book, Saudi America by Bethany McLean, I believe it was on the order of $70 billion that the industry raised and basically to set fire to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, so you've got bankers unwilling to throw a lot of capital at this space right now. You've got a lot of companies that are gone, a lot of companies that are chastened. Um, and it's interesting, you start seeing a lot of companies as well that cut the dividends, like I said, because they previously paid this largesse dividend. A lot of those dividends are gone. A lot of companies are having to learn to live within their means. That's a beautiful thing if you are an investor coming in today. Um, a lot of companies have, have got religion. Like they, they were free cash flow. That's what we're running the business for. It's free cash flow. We'll see if they keep their religion during the time. next time times are good. But for now, that's what they're talking about. But come back to International Petroleum, okay? International Petroleum has an interesting backstory. It's it's was originally, it comes out of a, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of London Oil, L-U-N-D-I-N. No. Uh, it was uh, London, it was a mining and energy, a family business out of Scandinavia in the early 80s, founded by Adolf London. Now he's passed away uh, since then, but there are, London family members and London former executives all over this company. Um, but basically the original, so the original, um, I might be a little sketchy here with my details, but the original International Petroleum, uh, which came out of uh, London Energy, um, 
was uh, merged with Sands Petroleum to form London Oil in about the late 90s, I think 97. London Oil was then acquired by the Canadian Energy uh, Talisman Energy, which was itself acquired by a Spanish company called Repsol in 2001. Um, I think 2001. Um, sorry, Talisman bought London Oil and then Repsol bought in, in 2001 and then Repsol bought Talisman, I think, in 2005 or something. Um, but following the sale, so here's the London family. They got lots of money. They launch a new new venture because they can't sit still and discount their money. They form London Petroleum, which is now London Energy again in 2002. Um, and from there, they spun off the international assets into International Petroleum in 2017. That's the company today. And... London Energy is still out there. It's got a market cap and it's got an enterprise value, sorry, of about 14 billion. But uh, the international thing is much smaller. Uh, you know, international petroleum is only about 1.1 billion enterprise value today. Um, but like I said, the management suite is absolutely full of ex-London people. Uh, so the chairman of is uh, is uh, is um, London Energy's founding CEO. Uh, international Petroleum CEO is the former CEO of London Energy. Their CFO came from London. Five of the seven directors have got ties to London. Uh, I believe their COO is actually a member of the London family, which did he earn his job? Is it nepotism? Tomato, tomato. But, you know, I mean, what are you going to do when you have that, that kind of historical family tracing there? It's, it's going to happen. Um, but they IPO'd during the middle of the Canadian oil bust. So they IPO'd in 2017. Never had a dividend to cut. They never had, you know, this history of burning cash. So they've always been run for cash flow. I mean, always been run. Companies have been public less than four years. Um, but they've all they've kind of, I think, come into the space. And if you also look at the broader history of London Energy and, and whatever, uh, they have a history of cash flow and, and managing for ups, upside return. So if a lot of the peers of International Petroleum EP peers have this kind of jaded history where they kind of these oil and gas companies forgot they were in the business of actually making money rather than wildcatting for oil and gas, these guys don't have that history. And I think that's important because then the other thing, and I realize this is horribly long-winded, I apologize to each and every one of the listeners. The other thing is these guys are really have a, are really tied operating leverage-wise to the price of oil, right? It's an oil and gas company. So when when oil was you know in the forty dollar a barrel range, um, which it was through most of 2020, they were free cash flow positive but just barely, I think they made $9 million or something. Um, but when oil goes up, when oil is significantly higher, say $55, $65 a barrel, now they're doing close to $100 million a year or more. Uh, and I believe in 2018, uh, yeah, 2018 oil averaged, uh, they used, by the way, they used the Brent crude, International Petroleum's kind of benchmark oil prices, Brent, as opposed to WTI or WCS. Um, I think they made just slightly over $200 million on an average oil price of, I believe, just shy of 72. So, hey, what's the oil price again, guys? Right now? 80, 80. Yeah. Oh, funny that. So if they made $200 million when oil averaged, 
200 million of free cash flow. They made $200 million in free cash flow when oil averaged 72. Um, through the first half of this year, I'm just going to pull up my numbers here if I can find them, which of course are, yeah, when I need them, of course, I can't see them. Um, I think I'm going to make it up. Um, I believe oil prices for them realized this year is somewhere in the 65, 60 to $65 range for the first half of the year. Okay. Um, oh, there, I just found it. Yeah. In, in the first quarter, uh, first quarter of 2021, they averaged $61 a barrel average price for their realize in, in second quarter, their average price was $69 a barrel. So let's, let's saw it off in the middle, call it 65. Um, on that, they have made just shy of $100 million in the first half of the year in free cash flow, which is interesting because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, on a um, on a, an enterprise value basis, and again, this is traded in Canada, so you got to convert it back to US dollars for apples to apples, um, but they have about a $1.1 billion market or, uh, enterprise value, market cap plus debt, and uh, you know they've made $100 million so far in the first half of the year. So real simple again, you know, average it out to 200 million, go back to 2018 where they made 200 million. This is a company that can make $200 million in a year trading at 1.1 billion. So you're paying five and a half times, six times cash flow. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's a that's a great overview. Or sorry, did you have anything else there? Or? Well, and I say then, then, then the next question is what do they do with that money? Right. Yeah, that's the big question. I think we'll have that on the concerns on the second half. But, yeah, right. let's let's hit a quick ad break and then we've got plenty more questions. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back in. I have a question kind of on the top of my mind, which is we talked a lot about demand staying where it is, at least for oil or uh, the three main. Yeah, I, I look at it as energy. Energy, energy okay. demand. Yeah, because I, I don't particularly, energy is fungible, sort of. Um, I... I have no idea what oil is going to do, or I have no idea what gas or anything like that, but I'm reasonably certain, A, we're going to maintain how much our energy demand is, and B, it's going to grow. Right. Now, if that happens, if, we're, if we get uh, whatever higher and higher prices, I think the saying in commodities is that higher prices are the cure for higher prices. Correct. Which would, what happens on the supply side when at that get more producers and then the price comes back down and then well the government's kind of there's been some government some of the thesis right i don't want to step in your toes is the governments have been restricting right some of the supply or am i getting that wrong yeah there there is a lot of pressure there is a lot of pressure from governments from large investor groups from um 
citizen social groups, if you will, there is a lot of pressure to uh, get serious about climate change. And for what it's worth, I agree with that. You need to get serious about climate change. But um, I believe they are stamping it down the wrong way. They're, they're doing it by stamping down uh, development of oil and gas reserves. They're doing it by um, preventing certain projects from coming to fruition or being allowed to proceed. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I don't think that's, that, that's not addressing what the problem is, which the problem is worldwide energy demand north of 170,000 terawatt hours per year growing at 2%. Like you, this is the world you live in. How are you going to choose to meet that? And it's 80% or 79% ballpark being fed by the big three fossil fuels. So if you've looked at coal prices recently, the commodity coal pricing, they've skyrocketed along with so many other commodities. Why? Because you've got various countries in the world very kind of quietly trying to, you know, get their coal supply because they realize that the energy, we're going to use energy and we, we have this energy demand and we are currently incapable of fulfilling that demand via just you know the incremental project of uh, incremental projects to address energy demand uh, are not all going to be renewables and green because they're just it's it's too small and forget forget about supplanting things but if you've got political pressure uh, like i said i i i if you have political pressure weighing on these things to me this looks like tobacco this looks like big tobacco from the 80s and 90s Right. No competitors coming online. Well, why, why do you, now I, I can see more competitors coming online. You know, I can see like, you know, some of these, some of these projects, if, if I'm just going to say something incredibly stupid, which, you know, will, uh, you know, won't be the first time. Let's say you got $300 barrel oil. Okay. At $300 a barrel, a lot of people are going to give up on their, um, on their deeply held religious beliefs concerning new oil development. Right. Why? Because it's $300 a barrel. As you say, the cure for high prices is high prices. But this is not something like anytime, like if, if, if you guys like compounders, and I know you do, um, you know, nothing in this space is going to be what you're going to call a classic compounder. I am not going to buy this company and hold it for the next 25 years. And when I, enter my retirement days and decide to uh, calculate my Kager on this thing. Uh, you know, look back, go, well, I made 20% annualized over the past 25 years by buying and then sitting on my rear end. Um, that's actually, you guys can swear on this show. I heard, I heard Jeff Moore on with, uh, uh, with thrive. So maybe I should, uh, I'll get a little more risque work blue. <laughs> um, but no, like you're, like you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not going to hold this for 25 years as a, as a, as a Kager company. It, this is, this is a, the environment we're in right now says to me, you want to be buying these things and buying in volume. When the world rolls over or when the cycle rolls over and it will, you want to be getting out. You don't want to be sitting there going, Oh, and, and by the way, you're going to miss the top of the cycle. You just are. Whether you'll either sell early or you'll sell late, but I promise you, except by by luck and chance alone, you will miss the precise top. So you can't worry about that. 
But, you know, if you can buy international petroleum, I, I started I started looking at this thing in the low fives. Uh, it's now in the low sevens, Canadian dollars. Um, if these conditions persist for a couple of years and you you get high oil and gas prices for a couple of years, because the last major cycle in Canadian oil and gas, upcycle in Canadian oil and gas, uh, I think largely went from oh, from late 09, early 2010 till 2014. Like you can get multiple years here of, of an upcycle before things roll over. Um, someone's going to correct me on those numbers. It's roughly right, people. Roughly right. Um, you can you can get multi bags out of these things, and then when everything is wonderful and everyone thinks they're a genius for investing in you know these oil and gas plays, um, that's actually when we'll start looking to get out. But you know, but in the meantime, you're paying like this company today. Like when I first started looking at it, it was trading at four. Like my cash flow forecast, which I shamelessly am adopting, minor tweaks, but largely adopting from the company itself. Going, hey, look at uh, at seventy five dollar barrel average oil price. Okay, uh, at seventy five dollar barrel average over oil price for the next four years, we will produce one point two billion in free cash flow. Well, that's pretty interesting when the enterprise value is 1.1 billion, isn't it? Yeah, I saw that number. I was like, okay, if the oil price stays elevated, things are looking pretty good here. And that's the big question, right? How many years do oil prices have to stay at these levels or higher? Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. Like I I could speculate. but I, I think, you know, pr- past cycles suggest I, I'm always bemused by, I used to, I used to teach at a local university a few years ago. And I would say I, last time I taught the course, I think was 08 or 09. And, um, in that course, I used to ask my students, when was the last time oil was below $10 a barrel? And so this is 09, right? Let's say it's 09. Um, was last time oil was below $10 a barrel? And they're like, oh, like 1950, 1930. You guys want to take a stab at it? Oh, mm, okay. $10 a barrel, guys. It's not going to be, oh man, I don't know my history. I don't know the numbers on the history of like the oil crisis in the 70s. I'm going to, I have no clue I was at all. reading a uh, history of the Standard Oil Company last week. So <laughs> Good. I'm going to go earlier than that. Or I'm going to go like 1915. Would you yeah, believe it was 1999? Oh, God. Oh, wow. Wildly off. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but that's the point, Ryan. Everyone is always wildly off because they can't, you know, oil prices rise farther than anyone thinks they can when they go up. Okay. And I point to the $140 barrel oil we got, or roughly that, in 08. Okay. And I think again, it was like 120 or it was certainly well over a hundred in, in 2014. And then everyone, you know, the downside when, when oil fell below $30, forget that minus $38 thing from the futures contract nonsense from the middle of the pandemic, because that was, you know, as someone forgot to close a contract. Okay. We got that night. But like, you know, when in, 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 I think it was 2018 when oil was hovering around $30 a barrel, 30, 35. And what were, what were the major houses doing? Like what was Goldman Sachs predicting? You know, they were, oh, oil is going to go to below 20. You know, like when, when you get these extremes, 
oil, for whatever reason, tends to overshoot on the extremes. It goes up farther than you think it's going to, and it falls farther than you think it's going to. And so, you know, right now, I think we're outperforming. There, and, and you start looking around at the world. What's the world saying? The world's talking about inflation. The world's talking about commodities. The world's talking about reopening. Okay. The world's talking about how oil and gas and fossil fuels bad. And so we can't own them. You've got the major, major oil companies, and I'm using that term very deliberately, you know, Total out of France, Total, Total, um, you know, BP, British Petroleum. They don't even want to be called British Petroleum anymore because they're energy companies now, right? We're yeah. energy companies. They're trying to step away from what brought them to the dance. And yet, you know, and you've got other companies, I'm trying to remember who it was, who's like exited the Canadian oil sands or whatever. Like, these are all good and wonderful things. And I am a fan, but I'm just sitting here going, no one wants to own these things. There is a reasonable path to this company earning its entire enterprise value in under four years. If that starts happening, and by the way, uh, International Petroleum has generated about $100 million, like I said, in the first half of this fiscal year. They're calling for slightly less than that in the second half of this year because they amped up their CapEx budget. I said earlier, all these companies have underinvested in their CapEx. So, you know, that's probably necessary, but also possibly worrisome because, you know, you don't want them spending all their money on CapEx, which again has been the seeds of problems in the industry as a whole historically, but again, London energy and these guys spun out of London have a good track record by some accounts. Some of the earliest money invested in the energy space has apparently 60 X since I think the beginning of this century. Uh, I have not independently verified that, but that's what I've seen from some of the writings from this company, not like the, the broader London energy, London oil, not international right. petroleum, obviously, but like these, these guys know how to make money in this space. And, you know, if you're wrong, if I'm wrong, then, you know, an oil prices retreat to say $45 a barrel, this thing probably tumbles along, makes 10, $15 million a year, free cash flow. The rest of the industry is also going to suffer. And, and that's just the way it is. Um, but I look at a world of pandemic reopening, inexorable slow growth, but still growth of worldwide energy use. Um, and not insignificant societal pressure against new fossil fuel, new oil and gas. And I say this, this is kind of in my kind of uh, contrarian investing style. This is, this is very interesting to me. Right. And what, so you talk, the price of oil is, uh, is hugely important here. If someone's looking at international petroleum, what are some other metrics, if they were a potential investor, that, that they should be looking at and that you're looking at to see whether you're, uh, things are going well or things are going poorly? going to be a little flippant here. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. You know, because again, the sins of this industry have been in the cash flow space, as in these companies burn a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, we can point to the value of reserves, the 2P reserves, proven and probable. 
and the net asset. This is the calculations that all oil and gas companies are supposed to do, and and International Petroleum does, and I think their NAV, uh, which is again tied to the proven and probable reserves that they have. I think their NAV is somewhere about. Um, look it up here. Uh, Eight dollars and forty cents U.S. So call that ten dollars and fifty cents Canadian. The stock price is about seven twenty-five as we speak. Um, that's lovely. That and two bucks will buy you coffee down the street. Um, you know, I don't really put a lot of stock in NAVs. I, I mean, it's nice to have, but uh, there's no, there's nothing that says the market has to value this company at precisely at NAV or higher. And NAV is just an estimate. So. Um, so I don't watch NAV too much, but I do watch how much cash a company is generating. And I do this for any company. It's not just, you know, oil and gas, but I want to see what's the company doing, you know, what's its cash dynamics, how much cash does it generate? And, you know, and then what does it do with it? So I've already mentioned one thing that these guys don't do dividends yet. I've mentioned another thing these guys are doing, which is, their capex budget, they've taken. I think they started this year at 37 million. I think they've jacked it to 73 million. So, yeah, and that is going to impact their uh, their cash flow. Their free cash flow forecast for the rest of the year was for an incremental, uh, I believe, uh, 35 to 95 million. Remember, they generated just shy of 100 million the first half of the year. Uh, incremental 35 to 95 million because they have this um, this higher capex now. CapEx can be good, or maybe they're just starting to fritter away like some of their uh, their brethren. But I will point out as well that that, that incremental uh, cash flow for the rest of the year is based between $55, million, sorry, $55 a barrel average price at the low end and $75 a barrel average price at the high end. And we are above that $75 price right now. So, you know, there is a pathway where they end up doing Another hundred million in the back half of the year, and what do they do with it? Uh, well, what they did with the cash on the first half of the year, the near hundred million they generated, I think it's ninety nine point two or something like that. Um, what what they did with that is they paid down their debt, and some they got some cash built up in the balance sheet, but the vast majority of it went under the credit line. And so uh, I suspect what the company will continue to do is they will continue to pay down the credit line because it's real hard for companies with no debt to run into trouble. It's not impossible, but financial trouble, it's damn near impossible if you got no debt. I think they're going to take out their debt. And I think they will probably also start buying back some stock. I'm hopeful they will. Uh, I don't see a dividend in the near future. I kind of hope they don't. Or if they do, I hope they make it up the uh, special variety um, because I like companies that can manage their dividends, not that are paying them because they think they have to. And Go into penury to to uh, to maintain that dividend come hell or high water. So the the uh, the priorities for the cash they generate in your mind is debt first, purchase repurchases second, then hopefully a special dividend. That would that yes. Interesting. All right. Any more uh, questions? I don't have. I don't have any. Uh, no, I think we covered any. Yeah. <laughs> I think it covers it pretty well. Yeah. Are there any other risks aside from oil prices? Uh, well, like I said, stupid management, uh, of which the oil and gas space has not lacked for over the years. Um, these guys had the pedigree, which made me interested in them. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, bad management, management that, uh, uh, management that allows, that allows the company to get into that caricature of the MP company I gave at the very start. The, you know, spend a dollar 20 for every dollar you make, we'll make it up in volume, look at the value of our reserves, here's a dividend. Um, there's a reason that's a cliche, it's because it's played out that way for a lot of these companies. And, and they've been bombed out the last seven years because of that. Uh, I would be, I would be very um, annoyed with and would probably reduce my position in this company. Disclosure, I own it. I don't think that's a shock. Um, but, you know, feel free to level, level charges of talking your book here. Um, I would be very disappointed to see this company go down that road, but it would be the first thing I would be watching for. If they, if they called out a dividend, like uh, we're going to pay... 10 cents a quarter, whatever. But look, it's only 50% of our free cash flow. Well, sure, it's 50% of your free cash flow when the average oil price is $75. What are you going to do when it goes to $55? Yeah. You're going to put on your credit line? I don't like that. I'll be gone. I see that. I will be gone. How much do they have uh, in debt? Uh, on the most recent, let me pull up that part of my spreadsheet. Uh, most recent reported quarter, which was ended for June of uh, 2021. So, um, uh, you know, we, we were, we're due for the next quarter. Uh, in, uh, hang on here, in US dollars, uh, because again, it is Canadian dollars, but I, my numbers here are, uh, they had 21.3 million in cash and 262 million in debt. Right. So they're going to need another year of this kind of another 12 months at these current levels to pay down all that debt. If that's, if that's where they go. Yeah. yeah if, if, uh, if we wake up and uh, Q3 numbers are out and they say, Oh, we made $50 million in free cash flow in the quarter. And uh, we bought back $50 million worth of stock. And, you know, now our, uh, uh, now we've reduced our, I mean, if they did that, that'd be damn near 5% of the shares. Um, but, you know, that's would be what it would be. Uh, but if they say, yeah, we're going to, we, we spent that $50 million on uh, shares because we're comfortable with our leverage. Uh, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be too upset about that. Um, I believe though, they, one of the issues here, and this is, uh, this is probably more my speculation than anything else, uh, but their credit line requires them to hedge. I believe it's about 40 or 45% of their production. Um, and so they hedged earlier in the year at significantly lower oil prices. Uh, I, I have to imagine that is grating on some, some of the insiders who would be like, well, geez, you know, we could be like, we're, we're hedged at 45, $50 a barrel oils hanging at 80 bucks plus for Brent. Um, boy, it'd be nice to get rid of that debt. So we don't have to pull out some of that, you know, so we don't have to buy by requirement of the credit line hedge. Uh, you know, we could then goose our cash flow. So I, I suspect they will. If like, again, if they make fifty million dollars this quarter, which I think, yeah, it's a reasonable guess, um, forty to fifty million. Um, I suspect it will all go onto the credit line. But you know, I'm open to. I'm. I, if you're listening out there, International Petroleum, I'm open to buybacks as well. 
Right. Always. At, at, at oh, a good price. Well, not always, but yeah, on this company, where, like I said, I think there's a, there's a reasonable path to see that this company is trading at, you know, five, five and a half, six times what, you know, or I think I've got the, uh, the, the upside down. Basically, they can earn their entire enterprise value in five years, five and a half years. Um, that's a reasonable price. Yeah. You know, you can, uh, if, if you're a 50 times sales software as a service company and you're buying back your own stock, I like, yeah, you can get out of here with that nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Reduce the flow by 0.1% a year. All right. I think that, that that's no. a good way to end it. Um, Ryan, you want to? Yeah. I'll hit, hit the outro, I guess, uh, for any listeners that aren't familiar with you, where can they find it? Uh, I am the lead advisor for Hidden Gems Canada, uh, which is uh, from uh, a Motley Fool product here uh, in uh, my fair country, the Great White North, as uh, our friend Chris Hill likes to call it. Um, I also serve as analyst uh, advisor at large for, as do as does everyone else on Team Canada, uh, for all of the other uh, Canadian products. So you can occasionally find me in Dividend Investor Canada. Uh, I occasionally contribute uh, to Stock Advisor Canada. Uh, we just launched uh, another service uh, called Microcap Mission in Canada, which is uh, oddly enough aimed at microcap investors. Uh, but my my primary love and where you can find me 80 plus percent of my time is on uh, Hidden Gems Canada, where I do my best to horribly confuse people every month by picking uh, a weird stock. Okay, well, I think that's gonna do it. We wanna remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 